Today I welcome Laurie Strauss, Head of School at the Field School in the USA. In this episode, we talk about mental health, challenging bias, female leadership, and driving change in a school. And you mentioned earlier that prior to becoming a head that you studied psychology and worked as a social worker. How has this experience influenced your approach to leadership? One of the basic tenets of social work that you're taught very early on is you start where the client is, but it's a pretty good tenant for life, right? When you're having conversations, when you're working with people, when you're trying to figure out what's going on with somebody, start where the person is, not where you think they should be. And so I think that has really impacted not only the way I lead, but the way I think about organizations and systems, whether they're really small systems or larger systems. And I also think that background is really about asking questions and and sort of what you were just doing just now, which is like, how do you get to know people? How do you understand what is important to them? What, where they derive meaning? And how do you create opportunities as a leader for them to feel satisfied and feel that the work that they're doing is purposeful? And do you think that mental health has got worse in your experience over the last couple of decades, or has it just become more normal to talk about it and identify with it? Oh, I think a lot of things are going on. And there's a lot of people far more you know, knowledgeable about this than I am who've written a lot about it. I do think the pandemic obviously had a great impact on individual people's mental health. And I think that it also gave us sort of a different context for talking about mental health. And so I think that we saw people obviously feeling less connected, more isolated, more in their own heads. And all of those things obviously can lead to greater amounts of depression and anxiety and other types of uh, mental health diagnoses. I think, you know, one of the things that I always tried to do when I was teaching health to seventh graders was to get them to shift the definition of mental health, right? Because mental health is not a negative thing. Mental health is how you feel about yourself, about the world around you, and about your experiences. So it can actually be a really positive thing, right? And for most of us, our mental health shifts on a daily basis, maybe even on an hourly basis, or, you know, but definitely over longer periods of time. And so I do think that we have gotten locked into a vernacular and a way of talking about mental health that does really lead for us to focus on the hard and difficult aspects of mental health, which then doesn't allow people to see the normal range of emotions that every single person has, right? It's like that feeling chart that they show little kids and say, you know, what are you feeling right now? Like sad, mad, angry, happy, joyful, exuberant, right? Like all of those different things you should have a wide variety of emotions and you should be able to live in those different emotions, right? It's teaching people the coping strategies for how to do that. So I think how we talk about mental health has made things actually really difficult because we talk about it in this very negative way. We use depression and anxiety, not as clinical terms, but we use them as like these very common terms that don't really express sort of how clinicians utilize them to diagnose people. But it's the same when you talk about neurodiversity and all those things, you know, everyone says, oh, they're on the spectrum, maybe they think, or they're dyslexic or ADHD. And they're so diverse and such a broad range. They used to be stigmatized. And I think now it's much better. We're not stigmatizing it because everybody is suffering. We all go through mental health issues. We battle them. You all go through them. I go through them on a daily basis, whatever it is, you know, juggling everything. There'll be moments that you ebb and flow. 
but it's knowing that I can talk about them and it's not a negative, it's not bad. And actually, it's just my way of coping with the moment because it's the human side of things. It's not an injury to my thumb. You know, literally, I had a splinter in my finger. Everyone heard about it, right? Oh, poor you, Simon. You've got a piece of wood stuck in your finger. I got more sympathy for that. Well, actually, I probably didn't get sympathy because I made more of it than me, the way I was feeling. And how do you shine a light on that in a school? I mean, how do you have those conversations with teachers as well as your, the students? Yeah. I mean, I think I've been really lucky in my career and that, you know, I've chosen schools and schools have spoken to me that really do. And I think more and more schools do have a whole child focus and are really aware of the need to, you know, not only teach to the entire child, but to understand the entire child from a teaching perspective. And so we here, you know, something we've done is that we have been really lucky to partner with experts who are working directly with our teachers. So we actually last summer spent a bit of professional development time prior to the start of the school with some psychiatrists from Georgetown and working with our teachers on understanding what the different facets of mental health are, but also classroom practices and strategies for addressing them. And then, of course, there is the whole piece about giving kids language for that themselves in a developmentally appropriate way over time. And so for our middle school and upper school students, I think a big part of that is that we have an advisory program that is not uh, like a check-in. You know, a lot of schools have a check-in program, which is hugely beneficial, but we actually dedicate, you know, about three times a week of substantial time, about an hour and a half that actually allows them to process and work on some of these issues. And do you think that schools put enough time aside? You obviously in a fortunate position being an independent school, you can allocate a lot more time just looking around and, you know, maybe it's, it's just what you've known, what you've read or your network. Do you feel the other schools and education as a whole, are we doing enough? Yeah. I mean, it's hard, right? It's hard to speak to as one thing sort of nationally or globally. But I think one of the things about education that we know when we're being honest with ourselves is that, you know, a lot of the world has changed. A lot of industry has changed in the last 100 years, but education has really been slow to change and adapt, you know, and, and much of what we do is following sort of practices in a classroom that were built for the industrial revolution, right, for training workers through that time. And we certainly haven't adapted as much as the world around us. And so I'm positive that, you know, none of us are really doing enough to not only like current mental health needs, but the needs of individuals in 2023. Then the hardest thing then is making sure the adults, you know, because we're the role models who have been through it and we're a shifting generation where it comes to kind of the, you talk about the exponential growth of technology and what we have access to this kind of this constant stream of content. You know, we have cognitive overload, not just daily. It feels like it's every kind of 10 minutes, there's something going in. And that's a hard thing because I find it in my own sphere when I look at my peers. We find it very difficult to also to role model. We're probably the worst role models where we know that it's bad for your mental health being on the, on the device. The device is sucking you in because you're doing it. And you repeat these things and you just forget that you're actually modeling the behavior that your child is witnessing and these things. So is there more we could be doing with parents and with staff? Because it's really important, the adult's role model. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of the age old issue, right? I have a friend, a psychologist who used to say, that you know we don't invest enough in teaching parents to be parents, right? There is a whole industry around pregnancy 
but there's not really that same support and industry around parenting. And for most of us, you know, where do we learn to be parents? It's from our own parents. And we either decide that we are going to be just like them because we think they did such a good job and we turned out so well, or we decide we're going to do everything the opposite way of what they did because we feel it was flawed. Do people read? Do people sometimes go to support groups? Sure. But there's not a lot of information for parents out there. And, you know, especially as kids get older and as technology gets introduced and all of those different pieces, where do parents have to go to have those conversations and to understand those things? And certainly, I think one of the hardest things about being a parent, right, is that if you're lucky enough to have multiple children, you have to parent multiple children. And certainly, parenting those multiple children in the same way is not typically successful. I mean, we're very lucky. And I'm sure there are some parents out there that are. But for most of us, right, we have these very, very different children. And we need to employ different strategies and model different things for each of them as they need it. And also, the different children that you have appear at different times in your lives, different influences, different environment, and also the world shifts. And it is then, you know, it's always amazes me, but also it doesn't because when you add all the ingredients together, it's not surprising they are all different. I want to talk about your role as a female head because, you know, we talk about glass ceilings, we talked about the landscape of women leaders, and I've had some inspiring female heads and other leaders on this podcast over the last few seasons. How do you think the landscape of women leaders has changed in education? And has it changed enough? The numbers have shifted in a positive manner, but you know, it is not sort of the way that we would like ideally to see things be. I think a lot of women, like in other industries, count themselves out of it because of feelings, sort of societal feelings about other roles that they're supposed to hold, whether that be as a parent or a wife or a child and see sort of the immensity of the role and have difficulty seeing themselves in it. And so, you know, I was really fortunate to have women role models and male role models who actually explicitly addressed that with me, right? And like, what are my values? What are the things that are important to me? And how could I actually do this job and have the other roles and the other facets of my life? And so that's something that I think actually is really important to show people how the job is doable because the truth of the matter is, is the pipeline for heads in general. It's not long. There's not a lot of people going into this profession right now or seeing it as desirous, especially coming out of the pandemic. And, you know, you see schools dominated by female leadership in other areas. Obviously, the majority of your teachers are still female, but when you get up um, sort of into leadership, you start to see fewer and fewer of us. And so I think there's that piece of it that is really important. I am on faculty for a program here in this area called Lead In. And that's a lot of what I hear from the women who are in the program is really talking about how do I have these other roles and do this job? And I think that is still really concerning for people. And I also think that there are obviously ways that women are still seen and there are stereotypes about leadership that you know, come into play in the hiring of women. And so where, you know, you see more and more heads of school that are in the K through six realm or the K through eight realm, certainly are not as many opportunities for women to lead schools that include high schools. And so really breaking into that, sort of going through that glass ceiling is something that is really important as well. And how do you address this gender bias and discrimination within schools? 
I think it's really uh, about having those conversations openly. A lot of independent schools, one of the most important obstacles to women being employed as a head of school is the search committee and the board of trustees. And so really working to ensure that your board and then the head search committee actually reflects the diversity of your school in all the ways that are important, including gender diversity and racial diversity and socioeconomic diversity. That is one way to start to address it very sort of systemically is to look at who is already in the leadership positions in your school. And I think the other piece is to, like I said, to keep having these conversations. It's something that I think is important for us all to talk about. It's something for us to talk about at the school level, for us to talk about you know, with administrative staff, it's something important to talk about with teaching faculty and certainly with, you know, current administrators who may be looking to move into those positions. You know, schools at their best and the worst are a microcosm of the larger world. And so there are things outside of schools that still need to be done to address that. Yeah, massively outside. We're seeing and we've seen over the last few months, and I think it will continue spotlights on businesses, on organizations, on sectors, on markets, on roles. It's going to continue to do that as more people do speak out. It surely has got to start at school. There was a, a great book launched this year by Caitlin Moran, who's a very strong feminist and leading voice. She's actually written the reverse book is How Do We Support Our Men or What About Men? And, you know, she's received a huge backlash, but okay, but you're a feminist, you're meant to be supporting it. She's actually flipped it another way and gone, well, no, if we're to address all of these issues, we've got to teach the boys. But the problem is we're teaching the boys that you can't be this, you can't be that. By the way, don't forget about this. Rather than going, look, how do you make them better boys to become better men so they understand it? Rather than going, we've got to fix the problem because there's not enough people up there. And so we're fighting the people who are already in the role, like educating the middle ages as such. I mean, look, the easy thing to do in any scenario, whether that's like, you know, at your school or whether that's in society, is to elevate one group of people at the expense of another or to create an us or them dynamic. That's super easy. It doesn't usually solve a problem. And so, you know, obviously, you know, what is good, you know, for one is a lot of times good for many. The problem is obviously when there's been either like a historical or at least over, you know, recent time been either a bias or a system that works against, you know, people being elevated, you do have to work systemically first and then have the conversations culturally, or at least at the same time. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. So how can we achieve better equality for women in education? I mean, I do think that one of the ways that we can achieve better equality is to support more professional development for women that allows them the opportunity to not only see themselves in these roles, but to enhance or at least promote their skills, the skills they already have that work against sort of the common stereotypes. I think one of the things, you know, obviously that sometimes is a stereotype about women in these, uh, in not only in schools, but once again, in society is that we aren't as good business leaders. We don't understand the financials in the same way 
And, you know, one of the ways, you know, that that gets reinforced in schools is that a lot of us come from academia and that that has been the bulk of our careers. And so, you know, obviously working against that stereotype societally, because women are just as accomplished business leaders, have just as much financial acumen as men. So working against that and really sort of highlighting those skills that women have and creating opportunities for women to show off those skills that we have, I think is a big part of helping women uh, move forward in school specifically, because I think there's less concern in the hiring process about us as academics and more concern about us as business leaders. And so I think really creating those opportunities for women to show off those skills. And look, it's something we can each do at each of our schools, right? Is create opportunities for women to stand up and show their knowledge and their expertise. And then as, you know, inviting men into that conversation as well. I want to talk about managing change because leaders have to be at the forefront of managing change within any organization. Do you thrive with change or are you cautious with change? What's your default position with change? I love change. I mean, that is what, you know, I think we all try to think that things are not changing because we think that it's easier and we try to live in that default position. But the truth is the world is constantly changing around us. And we are constantly changing as well. We may not be as aware of that change, right? Because we're living that experience and we don't see it as clearly, but that change is constantly happening. And so, you know, for me, change is something that I see as growth and evolution. So I see it in this very positive way, but I also come to understand that there are other people who are really fearful of change. And also change can be exhausting for some people, right? It can sort of feel like a constant state. And that can be exhausting. And so I think as a leader, you really have to look at what needs changing and prioritizing and putting your efforts into it, finding the right people and building the team and bringing everybody towards the same purpose, and then finding some excitement in that change. I mean, I think if people can see what the vision is for the end, then they're more likely to see it as exciting and not as fearful. And like I said, you know, part of that belief for me comes from the fact that I don't think education has changed enough. Yeah, well, we do need to change. As you said, you know, we are stuck in the Victorian time of education, you know, this, this conveyor belt of results and SATs and matriculation to get off to the best colleges. You know, it just feels very archaic rather than the individual. But I mean, it's great to see schools like yours that are changing and needing. I want to hone in and find out what kind of changes that you have implemented in your time as a school leader. And, you know, there would have been some that have been a great success and maybe others, because change doesn't always work, but you put yourself out there because you will fail. Have you got some examples of some things that you've done at the field school? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that, you know, we have been working on and many other schools around the globe have also been working on is the idea of skills-based education to the point that you were talking about previously, which is like we're all overloaded by endless amounts of content. And we have to teach kids and teach adults too, not just kids, how to understand and process that content and to evaluate it and to understand it. Clearly, we are living in a time where there's just so much of it that we have to know where it's coming from and how it's been written and why. And so content is important, but I think, you know, with the amount of content we have, what we're actually seeing is that the skills you employ around that content are so much more important. And the truth is, like we said, education for a long time 
was not skills-based. I mean, some of it was in terms of reading and writing, but that was very limited in that way. And so I think we've really shifted um, and continue to shift to a skills-based approach. Now, look, when you're creating curriculum that is skills-based, that takes a lot more work by the teacher, the individual teacher and the school. And it also requires that you have a lot more focus on um, sort of the scope and sequence of your program to make sure that you are really giving kids a full education. And so I think moving us not just to a skills-based education, but a skills-based assessment, like there hasn't been a lot. Um, There's been individual teachers, there've been individual schools really working on this and sharing sort of a network of schools sharing their successes. But I think moving to skills-based assessment has been one of the successes of my career, not just here at Field, but other places as well. And then I think this sort of interdisciplinary approach that we, you know, really are not seeing schools, you know, taught in these very specific siloed disciplines, but really bringing together an integration of those different pieces is incredibly important. And that's changed how we teach. It's changed how we look at history. It's changed how we look at science math, you know, English, everything. And so I think, you know, large scale change and how we teach and what we teach and how we assess what we teach, like all three of those things have had to happen in succession. And I think we've done a great job of that here. You have a an advantage with most schoolies because of your background in psychology, you know, understanding behavior and the way people are. Has that aided you, do you feel, obviously tackling people's fear of change, implementing new programs? And do they look at you skeptically going, you're inside my head, Laurie, you know what I'm going to say. You know, talking to other schools, you know, I have a dear friend who's a head of school who always says like, she feels like her LCSW being a licensed clinical social worker would actually be the degree that she needs for the job. So there's no doubt, right? But like my background also just, you know, personality wise, I think people We see it today in all facets of leadership, right? Not just in schools. We need to be more attentive, like, you know, sort of where our conversation started. We need to be more attentive to individuals, you know, who work in our organizations and why they work, why they chose. So like finding people that are mission aligned and share a vision for a place means that they're going to be more likely to go about with the change, right? Because they were attracted to the school for a particular purpose but also because they believe in it. They believe in it and they trust. And obviously trust is in short supply in our world right now, especially of leaders and of organizations. But I think being really transparent and honest with people whenever you can and finding ways to create that mission aligned vision allows people to go with you. And also like being able to say, I really screwed that up. We have to show vulnerability. It's almost counterintuitive to the 101 teacher's handbook you know, you have all the answers, you're always right, you know, because they're modeling you. But showing vulnerability is a real skill. Actually, I always feel better when I do admit to stuff that just hasn't worked right, because everyone thinks that you're always successful and it's not that way. Well, and also, I mean, it's a joke, right? Like all of the best inventions had prototypes that failed, right? From, you know, something that you begin with is always going to be a poorer version of something that you end with. I'm going to wrap up by asking you to look into your crystal ball and what do you think the future of education will look like in 2050? What I hope is that we are less tied to our spaces, less tied to our classrooms, that we've taken this skills-based interdisciplinary approach out into the world 
that we are allowing our students not to simulate and not to role play, but to really be involved in real world problems, not to solve them, but to begin to solve them, right? Because you don't come up with a solution in the beginning. I think there's enough real world problems out there that getting as many minds around them as possible is key. And I think sometimes we don't realize sort of the power we do have an ageism in our society. So the good thing about working in schools is that we always have that eternal hope. And we do get to see on a daily basis how powerful young minds are. And so I hope we're less classroom bound. I hope we are still focused on skills and increasingly so. And I hope that we are teaching things that are interdisciplinary and not lodged in siloed spaces. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.